0: All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. We return to our series, the, uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we are at Matthew 5, verse 21. So let me read God's Word, and this is God's Word. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love your word, and we ask that as you sat on that mount that day, explaining your kingdom and what that would look like. In the lives of those who believed in you and were following you, which now includes us. Lord, would you teach us, Lord, we want to know your heart behind these words. So that our lives can be transformed the way you planned into the people that you created for your glory. So Jesus, open up our eyes to see what you want us to see and change our hearts, change our lives. As we encounter your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we are, and I want to catch up a little bit with where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount so far because we've we've learned that Jesus has come introducing a world-changing event. The kingdom of heaven has come. It has come in him. The final reign of God has begun. The kingdom of God has broken into this evil age in Christ Jesus, which means that the world, as we know, it has changed. And we've also learned that the kingdom has come in such a strange and unexpected way, right? This is what the Beatitudes are all about at the beginning. The world thinks that you and I are blessed when we conform to or have certain characteristics that the world values and loves. But we have learned that God says that we are blessed because of characteristics in you and me that he produces, that he gives, that are so counterintuitive to what the world values and lives for and thinks about. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the hungry And thirsty, not for gain and power and recognition, but those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, even those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The people who enter into the kingdom of heaven fully under the powerful reign of God will experience a kind of radical transformation. So much so that our lives will actually begin to change the world. Or better, Jesus will begin to change the world through his power at work in our lives that results in good deeds. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That those who see your life, that see that light, to experience that salt will actually result in glorifying God the Father because of the good deeds that they see in us. Look, the kingdom of Jesus changes everything. Okay, so then what does that look like? Or what does it mean then for our everyday lives and for the disciples' lives back then? And more to the the point, how does Jesus coming then or now, how does Jesus coming connect to all that has come before? Jesus goes in this direction of, of making connections now with everything that has come before, namely with regard to the law. And this question, did Jesus come to abolish The law, which Jesus says emphatically, and this is the last time we studied the Sermon on the Mount, he says emphatically, no, he did not come to abolish God's law. Jesus was the true and better Israelite of Psalm 119 who loves the law of God, who loves the rules of God, who loves and thrives in the commands of God. He finds life and joy in God's ways. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In the end, the law would point to our need for a Savior, who would be Jesus. But then we also found that in the New Covenant, Jesus would actually write God's law on our heart. Do you remember this? Look again at Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And this from Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart of the gospel in the new covenant age when the kingdom of heaven breaks in is it's going to break in with power from God to transform our hearts. To give us power to finally obey God because we want to because we love to. From the very core of our being, this will be a righteousness that far surpasses the scribes and Pharisees because it's a new heart kind of Righteousness. It's a righteousness that springs from hearts made new, a righteousness empowered by the Holy Spirit who will live in us. It's it's a righteousness that will no longer be stuck on the letter of the law, the, the very least that we need to do to check the box of obeying the law but it's a righteousness that's gonna go to the very core of our being and our thoughts and our motives and how we think about and even treat others, starting with our hearts. You see, this is what God's plan was all along. The Problem was never the law with his people. The problem was sin and how sin leveraged the law in people who rebelled against God. Look, God is always meant to accomplish his will in his people for his glory and for our good. When we live according to God's commands, his holy and righteous and good and gracious commands for us, then that leads to our joy and our flourishing as image bearers of God. How cruel would it be of God to create us in his image and then tell us nothing about what that looks like for our good, to tell us nothing about how to live in this world that he's created, especially since it's broken and fallen now. Look, God was gracious to give his law, but, but super abundantly gracious to give us now his spirit and to write his law in our hearts so that we Can live for him. So in the Sermon on the Mount, at this point now, this this turn, Jesus, the true and greater Moses, went on the mountain and now clarifies the law and the requirements of Christ who we will now obey from the heart. Jesus gets right to us. He's going to use this pattern that we'll see today and we'll see again and again, where he says, with regard to the law, that you have heard it said, such and such, but I say, right? So let's look at it again here in verse 21. He says that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, what's important to see here is that, that Jesus transitions into an interpretation of the law that goes much deeper than the letter of the law as we can already see. And it's that letter of the law that the Pharisees and the tradition of their day clung to. It's important to see that Jesus is not adjusting the law itself per se. He is adjusting the current interpretation and teaching of the law by those who were experts of the law in that day. He's adjusting the teachers, not the law itself. But in adjusting the teachers... He unpacks for us the true meaning and depth of what God desired all along in the first place. What I mean is Jesus says, you have heard it said, you've heard, well, the, the letter of the law. And it says, don't murder, don't murder, thou shalt not murder, period, full stop, which is true this does reflect the sixth commandment but is this all that this law is about because technically you see you you and i could do this we could do this we could obey the sixth commandment i by god's grace have never murdered anyone and by the way, this is completely separate from just war theory, and we live in a military town, and that's its own complete separate study if you want to study that. This is the, the sinful taking of a life. This isn't killing, this is murder. Thou shalt not murder. By God's grace, I've never murdered anyone, and I, and I don't planned to in my lifetime. And hopefully that's good news for everybody sitting here or hearing my voice. So there's a sense what I'm trying to say, and hopefully you're the same, that we could get to the end of our life and check this box. Done. As far as, as the law a Pharisee. Perfect. I never murdered. But is that all that this law is about? Is that all that this law requires? when you consider the entirety of God's heart for his people? And the answer is no. God actually cares about where murder comes from. And that is from the anger that lives in our hearts. Look, remember, in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is about radically transforming people. Not just behavior. People. At the core of their being. Which is why Jesus is going to go after the very root of where murder comes from. He is after our hearts. He's not just interested in outward obedience. But is interested in that deeper righteousness that begins in our motives. So let's, let's talk about anger. Let's answer these four questions as we consider these, this, this text. Let's think about what is anger? Second question, is anger always sinful? Third, let's look at the anatomy of sinful anger. Let's try to dissect it a bit and see its parts. Meaning, what does sinful anger look like or produce? And then fourth, what is the remedy? What does Jesus want? So the first question, what is anger? And I think we all know what anger is, right? I mean, I think so. Anger is an emotion, it's a response, it's a strong feeling of displeasure, hostility, rage, or resentment that either seethes inside of us or erupts towards others. I wonder, what do you tend to get angry about? If you're willing for just a moment, bring it, in, bring it into your head right now, into your, like, What do you get angry about, particularly? Or, who do you get angry with? (laughs) Might be a better question. Or, what was the most recent time you were angry? And I bet many of us would raise our hand if I asked, was it this morning? Right? So when we're thinking about what anger is, if I could ask all of you if you were willing to share what was in your head just a second ago, I think we'd get a pretty good picture of what anger looks like and what it is, especially if you were to describe it. Anger includes that range, right? It certainly is a range between simple irritation all the way to boiling and explosive rage. Now, this can sometimes remain inside of us. We know that anger isn't always vented. Sometimes it can live inside of you. But often we do vent our anger. And again, we vent our our anger in that, that range, right? That range between getting the eye. Have you ever gotten the eye? That glaring look. Have you ever gotten the, that, the eye from your mom? <laughs> like, why do moms seem so good at this one? Just, you know, or it just puts you in place immediately. And maybe there's some righteous anger in there. I don't know. could be. But it can start anywhere from that glaring look all the way to going ballistic. Screaming or yelling, belittling or cursing or insulting. And then finally, there is the physical expression of anger that's shown in throwing things, whether that's objects or punches. Anger can result in hurting someone and yes, eventually even murdering someone. Look, the anger that Jesus has in view here is this kind of anger and and this kind of sinful anger, this anger, this sinful response that is provoked because of some kind of an affront against ourself. Our pride, our desires, our demands, our comfort or even our preferences. This anger is the root from which murder grows. If grown-up Yoda was at one time in his beginning baby Yoda, well then Murder was at one time in its beginning baby anger. I don't know that you'd want to call it baby anger because Jesus cares about this. So I think we know from our experience and our observations what anger is is and looks like. That leads to the second question, but is all anger sinful? And the simple answer, even amidst the complexity, is no, not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger. A character trait of God is his wrath. A characteristic of of a perfect holy God is his wrath, which is his right response to all that is wrong and evil. We know that Jesus was angry righteously with the money changers as well as the religious leaders who were hard-hearted in their unbelief. Look, righteous anger is, is the right response to that which affronts God and his glory and his design. We should be good and angry about abuse and slavery and racism and exploitation and tragic violence and any other form of evil perpetrated against God and his image bearers. We are right to be angry when we see evil in connection to God, which means that it's, it's oftentimes difficult to exercise a pure, righteous anger, but it's not impossible. But yet it's important to realize that Jesus isn't talking about righteous anger here. Jesus is talking about sinful anger because he connects this kind of anger to murder. And also three times he introduces the proper condemnation of the anger that he is addressing, right? He said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be one liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, the Sanhedrin, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's condemning this kind of anger, which means he's talking about sinful anger. And he's used the word anger, but then the next word he uses is insults. Whoever insults his brother. And this is a word that is used for a kind of contempt that judges someone as mentally worthless. Mentally empty. So we would say empty-headed or block-headed or brainless or stupid or moronic. And really what this is about it's Essentially, describing someone or judging someone as subhuman, as less than human in their mental capacity. And then the third word that he uses, you fool or raka, if you've heard that phrase. This was a kind of cursed that judged someone as morally worthless. Because there's just hardly no one worse in the scriptures than the fool. So to call someone a fool was to render them morally worthless, morally useless. Again, essentially subhuman or less than human. And I think it's, it's there that we begin to see what anger essentially does and why it is so serious to Jesus. Because do you remember the reason that murder is prohibited? Thou shalt not murder. Why? Well, because the person that you're killing has been made in the image of God. What right do you have to take the life of someone who was given life from God himself? The reason we don't murder is because you do not harm an image bearer of God like that. So this starts to lead us into this third question, which is the anatomy of anger. What, what, what do you get when you pull anger apart into its parts, which we often don't do when we're in the midst of being angry with somebody? But I think it's helpful to see that when we are sinfully angry with others, we are essentially putting ourselves in the place of God, if that helps that you and I are putting ourselves in the place of God. And what I mean by that is we first assign to ourselves infallible judgment over someone for what they said or did. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever notice that then whenever you are sinfully angry with someone in that moment, you for sure are absolutely right about what you're angry at. You are right. You consider yourself infallible in your interpretation, in your judgment, in your analysis, and in your conclusion. You make yourself like God. It's interesting that that angry people are oftentimes the last to know how angry they are, but the most confident in how 100% right they are. I think that's because we put our, ourselves in the place of God. And then, it continues, because then, like God, based on our infallible analysis of the offense that's been created against us, we then dispense wrath. Because we have been affronted. You and I dish out the appropriate punishment in whatever form or version your anger or wrath takes. Even if it's the silent treatment, or if it's dumping over the kitchen table. Someone's gonna pay. There's a penalty. And you're going to dispense wrath. As if you or I are God, we think we can treat another image bearer of God that we think their sin deserves with the wrath we think it deserves. That's what anger is, sinful anger, which in the end results in dehumanizing the other person, dehumanizing an image bearer of God. C.S. Lewis says that every person that you meet, angels will one day be tempted to worship. Because of the glory given to us as image bearers of God. In our anger, we dehumanize. At the very least, by your abusive treatments, Or at the worst, by your desire to literally eliminate them. To cancel them. Maybe that's by verbally reducing them to shreds through your curses and insults or literally removing them from the living by murdering someone and taking their very life. Look, all of our sinful anger is often a fruit of elevating ourselves to the place of God as the infallible prosecutor, judge, jury, sentencer, and punisher. And not only is this the height of arrogance, but this leads to the verbal or physical abuse of other image bearers of God. Where in that moment of anger, you've pushed somebody so far away from you and said, be gone from me. Which is the exact opposite. We just sang this. I was thinking about this as we were singing. It says, we are children of the promise. The beloved of the Lord. One with everlasting kindness. Bought with sacrificial blood. Blood. Bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know. Got that? Do you agree with that? That there's a kind of longing in the world and in our own hearts for the affections of a father who will never let them go. Look, this is random. We, we sang that. I love this song. I love that verse, and it's true. And it taps into that, that longing that we feel to belong and to be accepted and to be loved and to be wanted, which is what the gospel does in reconciling us to God. But think about what anger does in that context. Anger is the exact opposite of that. It says, get away from me with your words and insults and reactions. It's, it's a division. It's a putting down. It's a removal instinct. And again, this is why it is so serious. And maybe you'd say, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Like, all my family does is scream at each other. <laughs> like, this is just what we do. Right? Like, we're not that. We just, get, we just get frustrated with one another, right? And we kind of live by the philosophy that better out than in, right? Are, are you, is that what you're talking about? And yet, yeah, because life and death are in the power of the tongue, the Bible says. With the same tongue, you worship God and scream at your kids. Or scream curses at the guy who cut you off. Or at the news station you are watching. Or the image bearer of God who just happened to get your order wrong. Should this be knives, daggers, leaving other image bearers of God cut and bloodied? Look, it's so important. Do you see the connection between anger and murder? In the heart of God. Because when sinful anger is expressed, something always dies a little bit. Isn't it true? Do you know that? When sinful anger is expressed, something always dies a little bit. Even if that something is inside of you. Look, I'm, I'm not typically an outwardly angry guy. If you know me. That's just... It's just kind of not my personality. I don't, I don't really blow up or go off on anybody. Have I ever gone off on you if you're sitting in this room? It's just like it's just not my thing. I'm more of a peacemaker type. It's not my personality. But that does not mean I am not an angry man. My angry my anger mostly lives in my heart and between my two ears. My anger typically expresses itself when I get in the car and I pull up the person that I'm angry with. And from my house in Greenbrier all the way to Lynn Haven Mall, I'll have that conversation with that person in my own mind's eye. And I'll tell you what, I give it to them. I tell them all the things that I want them to know and all the things they did to me and how mad I am at them. Literally, I, I don't even remember getting to Lynnhaven Mall sometimes. And that kind of anger within me actually turns into a a kind of bitterness that starts to eat away at my soul. And it's just as serious to God. As a matter of fact, this is why I found it so interesting what Frederick Buechner said. And this I quote, he says, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds... To smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Isn't that interesting? It's because when sinful anger is expressed either outwardly or inwardly, something always dies a little bit. So what do we do? So what do we do? What is the remedy And I hope the first thing that is evident from all that has been above is to realize that if Jesus says that our anger is as serious as murder, then I think we should take anger more seriously than we probably do, right? I was just irritated. I was just frustrated. No, anger calls forth judgment. Judgment from the council and even the fires of hell. Jesus says, just at its face, anger is serious. But how much more serious should we take anger as members of the kingdom of heaven? where Jesus is bringing healing, and restoration, and wholeness, and flourishing, and life, and peace, and joy, all bought with his precious blood. Jesus is creating a new people on the earth, a new reality. Imagine a kingdom of people who so honored and respected each other, not just as image bearers, but as blood-bought image bearers of God, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So much so, we honored each other so much so, that to be angry with one another was as thinkable, as, as unthinkable as literally stabbing someone with a knife. Imagine living in a kingdom like this. And this indeed is the reality that we will experience in a new heavens and a new earth, where there will be no more sin. Can you imagine an existence where you never get angry ever again at anyone for any reason. <laughs> Come Lord Jesus, right? That is going to be our reality someday. But until then, that kingdom has broken into our lives today. And that is what Jesus wants to fix and produce in our hearts right now towards one another. So, we take anger seriously, not just in light of its effects or consequences towards one another, but because we're followers of Jesus, living out new kingdom realities. The second thing to do is to observe exactly what Jesus tells us to do with his illustrations, right? The first illustration is, is of a worshiper leaving his offering when he knows that someone has offense with him. That's what Jesus says to do. And then the second is a debtor, someone who owes something to someone else who is on their way to the judge, haven't gotten to the judge yet. These two illustrations, by the way, are, are about the same thing. If anger is as serious and destructive as Jesus says, then these two pictures press his followers to see the necessity, the priority, and the urgency of reconciling with one another. With those who have offended you and those you have offended. If you're taking notes, write that down. The necessity, the priority, and the urgency of reconciling. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is the remedy. This is what we should do. The necessity speaks of the idea of never letting anger fester because it only gets worse. It metastasizes into more and more destructive bitterness for the worshiper and the debtor. Don't ignore anger. Don't ignore it. But then the priority and the urgency are also illustrated. Once you are or you realize someone is offended with you, Jesus uses the word first. That's priority language. Drop what you're doing. Nothing is more important than this. First, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Stop what you're doing. Even if what you are doing is an act of worship, Look, God has always cared more about the character of our worship and the heart of our worship than just the mere action of our worship. To obey is better than sacrifice, remember? Sometimes we connect this teaching of Jesus to the verses in 1 Corinthians that speak of refraining from taking communion in an unworthy manner, which there also had to do with unity and division, The point is, if we are celebrating the powerful effect of the death of Jesus and his broken body and his precious blood that was shed, a sacrifice for us that restores and reconciles and unifies sinners to God and unifies sinners to one another, and yet we have anger in our heart towards somebody and we're dehumanizing them and removing them from us, then how does that make any sense as you put those elements into your mouth? Honoring and celebrating the powerful work of Christ and yet saying, but not in this compartment of my life because that's the little place where I'm God. And I'm currently punishing somebody there. I'm currently withholding forgiveness from someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been completely forgiven of all of my sins by the gracious action of a gracious Christ who did everything to save me and to remove all of my sins as far as the east is from the west. But in this little place with this person, nah. uh You see what I mean? Jesus says, there's, there's a, a bigger priority right now for you than this bread and this cup of grape juice. Why don't you leave your gift? Now, now, now the church connects those teachings. Maybe, I, I think it's a good illustration here. Because this is talking about the sacrificial system, for sure. That's what Jesus is referencing. But I think there's a good, a good connection. The priority. And then even the urgency. It's illustrated in that second illustration about going to the courthouse jesus says try to reconcile before it's too late that's the point of that while you're on your way what does that mean except it's there's coming a a section where it's going to be too late Like make friends with the guy that you owe money to while you're on their way because when the judge makes a final declaration and sends you to debtor's prison, which by the way, you can't work in debtor's prison, therefore you can't pay back the debt that you owe, therefore you're gonna be there forever. It's a lethal sentence. So do you see the urgency of reconciliation before it's too late? Before the bitterness has consumed you? There's a priority, a necessity, an urgency to reconciling. And I, and I want you to know that I know that Jesus is not addressing every possible relational dynamic and conflict. Nor the deep wisdom necessary in navigating relational complexities or trauma or the need for boundaries. There are times when after attempting peace, we are told to have nothing to do with them with regard to the divisive. There are times when reconciliation was attempted, but it just is not possible for whatever reason. There's times that reconciliation should only be attempted with others mediating and maybe even professionals. But Jesus' point is simply to address the seriousness of anger and therefore the necessity, the priority, and the urgency of reconciling, even if that means as far as it is up to you, be at peace with all people. If you say, I've done everything that I can, then you leave it into the hands of God. Jesus is talking about reconciliation that includes these, these powerful graces. Of repentance and confession and the extension of forgiveness. And that's where we'll we'll close. I love that the overall idea here. I love how Jesus doesn't just go, with regard to anger, just stop it. You know what I mean? If you've seen that Bob Newhart, if you haven't, Google it. He doesn't just go, just stop it. And and certainly it's implied that that we should refrain from, from anger. Because of its seriousness. But but don't you hear in this Jesus' gracious instruction. That is way more weighted on when you've been angry. Right? When you've offended someone. Or when someone has offended you. Because that indeed is our life. We are sinful. If I think therefore I am. Then I am, therefore I anger. Right? We just are angry. It's a part of of the fall in us. It's a part of that complex, that combination of of response and reaction. It's a part of that, the thing that I don't want to do, I do. The thing I want to do, I don't do. What a wretched man I am. Especially if you're here and, and anger's a thing. It's been a besetting sin in your life. It's maybe felt like an an uncontrollable reaction. Look, Jesus does not come to condemn. He comes to give hope. And the way that he gives hope is by graciously acknowledging when we're angry with one another and when we've offended someone and when someone's offended With us. Look, no matter who you are, I I hope that that our eyes are open to what Jesus wants to see about this area of our lives. And I do hope and have been praying for a a sense of sweet conviction from the Holy Spirit. He may be pushing on your heart right now. I think there are some angry men in here who are listening. Some angry dads and, and your family is, it would want to tell you you're killing us you're killing us And maybe the worst part is you don't even think it's a thing you don't even think it's a big deal and yet, yet in ways that you don't even see your wife and your children are bloodied and may spend a, a lifetime needing to heal Look, should this be among the people of God? Well, well, no. And that's why Christ came and wrapped himself in flesh and lived the life that we couldn't live so that he could give you a power from the inside to change. To change and to grow. The hope of the gospel is not if you get angry, but when you get angry. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then when you're willing to humble yourself and go to those that you've been angry with and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And when that person receives the grace from the Spirit of God to say, yes, I forgive you, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Do you know what change happens when we forgive one another? You say, well, how many times, Eric? You don't understand. I, I can forgive seven times. Seven times, is it 77? Jesus says, no. It's again and again. Oh. The gift that you give when you genuinely forgive someone who sinned against you. When you've released somebody that you've been bitter with for so long. Look, that's what Jesus is doing on the earth today and people like us. The world knows anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and division and murder and canceling and ostracizing. But there's a power that exists in this room in every one of the hearts of those who believe in Jesus and are following him. A power of true confession every time it happens. Not if you're angry, but when, 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 when. And the true gift of forgiveness extended. Yes, I forgive you. Why? Because God and Christ has forgiven all of my sins. And who am I to hold against you what God does not hold against me? You see? You see? That's what Jesus is doing in us. And that will change the world. So, worship team, you can join me. There are some today that the call is to, to go to someone that you know that you have offended and ask their forgiveness. Maybe own what you've done. Maybe there's been a barrier, maybe there's a rift. A beef, that's what we call it these days, don't we? You've got beef. Maybe God is, is calling you to get to that person. And in light of this, and in light of what God is showing us through his word, in light of what Jesus cares about, look, I'll be the first to say, yeah, don't kill that person, okay? Everybody, if, you're, if you've got that person that you need to reconcile with, don't murder them. But do you think that that's where God's heart for you stops? No. So much deeper. There's a power that goes so much deeper. Maybe for some here the the call is to forgive someone that you know that you haven't forgiven. And again, maybe you need help and maybe that's going to be a process. And it's, I get it. As pastors, we would love to, to walk with you. Maybe you've tried, but the call to forgive because God and Christ has forgiven you, I just would encourage you to listen to what Jesus is saying to you and me today for the, for the sake of the glory, the glory of Christ who is at work in us and in his kingdom through our church. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it, it, it's sharp and it does cut like a knife and it gets into the place of, of motive and where our hearts are at today. And Lord, these issues that you address in these next chapters speak to all of us. Lord, you get right to it in terms of right where we live. And we graciously want that. Lord, we invite your spirit to come and search us and know us even as Alex preached last week as we walk through this section, starting with our anger toward one another. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here with the hope that is found that when we sin, not if we sin, but when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus, you forgive us every time. And we have access to these graces of confessing our sin and making things right not letting the sun go down on our anger and waking up the next day with new mercies to seek to follow you by your spirit again. Lord, we love your gospel. We love the hope that we find there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.